0: So welcome to a bonus episode of Clerically Speaking. So I'm Father Harrison today. I'm joined by with uh, today for this bonus episode, Luke Burgess. So welcome, Luke, to uh, Clerically Speaking.
1: Uh, really good to be here, Father Harrison. Good to finally uh, be able to talk to you. We we're supposed to get coffee together 14 months ago in Victoria, <laughs> and then I, my,
0: I had a dentist appointment. I couldn't get out of, and it was just yeah. You see, you have to understand as an Islander to like drive planning your day with an hour and a half drive it's like a road trip because to drive anywhere more than five ten minutes
1: is considered too far to go now it wasn't that i was thinking that that day but it's just like i didn't know it was a dentist appointment i thought it was the salvation of souls or something like that you work as a pastor now that i know it's a dentist appointment well i
0: mean (laughs) i had to suffer the dentist appointment for the sake of my parishioners that's one and then you know your mouth needs to work in order to preach so That's That's technically true. it was, yeah, I know. I was really like, <laughs> I was like, I was like move, trying to move my schedule around and make it all work. I just, I, and I couldn't it's, get down.
1: I couldn't, yeah. it's not an easy place to get no. to either. I came a long ways, but here we are 14 months later. And, and then hopefully we'll be finding meeting
0: right? in person in the flesh in the fall. In That's the right. Fall. So that'll be great. Yes. Hopefully. So, hopefully. so uh, uh, Luke is the author of a book called wanting, which is a, a kind of like popularly, but also like not popular, but not popular in like the usual sense of popular, right? Like you're not, Mm -hmm. You don't, uh, overly water it down. You know, it's not like, I'm just going to say three things and write 200 pages. Uh, you're trying to popularize, um, Gerard's thought for day to day life, but to make it really understandable because he's not an easy guy, but, uh, why don't you just tell the people about yourself first? Let's just go there.
1: Sure. Um, I am from Michigan, Michigander, uh, from the West side of the state. And, um, Went to college in New York City and worked on Wall Street for a short period of time. And then I had a a career as an entrepreneur, a very short-lived career on Wall Street. I hated it. Uh, And then was in the startup world for most of my 20s and started a few companies. And then I had uh, a very serious coming back to my faith in my late 20s. Um, Just had my world completely rocked in Las Vegas, Nevada, of all places. (laughs) I moved to Vegas just expecting to play a lot of poker and, and, you know, sell my latest company. And, um, it was just, it was funny because I was literally in the desert and I, I, I was actually, I didn't know that I was going into the spiritual mm-hmm. desert for a while and, uh, had a serious conversion experience in Vegas, mm-hmm. um, which led me after a few years to discern the priesthood and became a seminarian mm-hmm. for a while, uh, studied for five mm-hmm. years, uh, yeah. ultimately left, um, I'm now at Catholic University of America, where I help run the Center for Entrepreneurship. We call it the Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at Catholic University. Uh, I'm a professor in the business school, Um, I do a lot of writing, I wear a lot of different hats. Um, I've helped start a a program that teaches entrepreneurship in Catholic high schools around the country. We're in 28 Catholic high schools and we fuse um, principles of what it means to be an entrepreneur with Catholic social teaching and creation theology and all kinds of things like that. Uh, so I love my job. Um, I love that I'm sort of able to uh, integrate all the things that are important to me, which are obviously my, my, my Catholic faith and, um, and creating creation. And I uh, became fascinated quite a while ago, probably geez, um, about 10 years ago now, with a Catholic thinker named Rene Girard, who definitely changed my life, um, changed the way that I think um, not just uh, about the intellectual life, but even the spiritual life and um it's part of why we're talking mm-hmm. today i wrote a, wrote a book on gerard and uh i think he's i think he's still very underappreciated i mean i, I did try to make his work accessible in the book but um if bishop baron is right and gerard is a future father of the church um you know he died in 2015 was not not very long ago um especially when we're talking about uh, doctors of the mm-hmm. church i think we're we're only at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding what he has to offer the church um and i'm just trying to play my small part in making it a little bit more accessible. Very cool. Um, man, Oh, so much there. What was your, ex- maybe let's just, let's talk about like the
0: personal faith stuff there too, because for a bit, because I think um that's important for, this is, a, I think this is a lot of ex- people's experiences. What What is it that made you kind of, did you kind of stop practicing your faith then for a while? Were you raised in the faith extensively? Like, how, what was that like for you? Like, was it this like, were you like that normal Catholic? Like, yeah, I went to Catholic school or, you know, I did my first communion, confirmation stuff and then I turned 18, I'm just out or or what, what happened there?
1: You raised Catholic, um, r- but sort of in, in a relatively lukewarm way. You know, we usually went to church on Sundays. I went to Catholic school. Uh, I got kicked out of one for getting in a fight. And then I got went to the only other Catholic school in town, high school. Mm-hmm. And I, ref- I never got confirmed. I just somehow like missed that boat. Mm-hmm. So I never got confirmed when I was in mm-hmm. high school and I went away to college and, you know, out of guilt, I would make it to mass on Christmas and Easter right. during <laughs> most of my time. And I went to NYU in New York yeah. City uh, and then for years afterwards and yeah, it, it so I, I I always identified as a Catholic, like if anybody, even while I mm-hmm. was really far away from the church and not going to mass, mm-hmm. if anybody spoke nev- negatively about the Catholic church or Catholics, I, I was like, Hey, can't talk like that. Like I'm, you know, I'm Catholic. So <laughs> in some way I was like super culturally Catholic you know, or yeah. identified yeah. as Catholic, uh, but it wasn't until my late twenties that I had that experience. Yeah. And uh, through meeting some um, incredibly generous and frankly, holy lay people. Yeah. In, in Las Vegas, mm. uh, and then I uh, thought to myself, I should probably get confirmed. Mm. <laughs> and that was, and that was the that was the one of the first um, that was the, the sacramental step that I took, yeah. and then the confirmation um, set me on fire even more than I already was. And before I knew it, I was going to daily mass and developing um, healthy ha- prayer prayer life and, and mm. habits, and um, and learning to discern for the first time in my life, and um, just live. Uh, kind of the sacramental world view where I began to see uh, my faith is not um, this thing that I do that's kind of added on to my work, but the world, um, I just saw the entire world with new eyes, including the people that I met on a day-to-day basis. It was almost like everything was an opportunity for me to have an encounter. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that I can describe Mm -hmm. the, the conversion experience is that I was encountering reality for the first time. Somebody so just went to uh,
0: the New York experience.
1: <laughs> oh, I got, you know that I was New there. New York encounter, sorry, <laughs> New York encounter. That's yeah, a very, it's a yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a very Djosanian du- <laughs> way to say it, right? But I, I, I felt like I was, I was able to adhere to reality.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's so funny.
1: Um, you know, I, you don't have to
0: talk about this obviously if you don't want, but I'm just kind of curious because like obviously, you know, this show is run by two priests. Um, and um and we've had lay people on before but i think you're probably our first guest And we don't have a ton of guests so like blessed are you um uh but you're one of it's very rare that you get a guest who's kind of gone to seminary and then like realized not nah, this isn't it are you are you willing to talk about that a bit like just like what that discernment was about because i think that's also important for people here like like just because you're going to seminary doesn't mean you're going to be a priest right and then and, and that discernment um and it doesn't mean that you're going to be holier because you're a priest or anything like this. Like, like, are you willing to talk about that bit? Uh, we can cut. You know, oh yeah, 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 yeah. talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great because I think it's important for people to hear.
1: Sure, um, and I, you, I can go deeper into it if you have any any follow ups. Um, the, in a way, um, I had to do a lot of um, discernment in my late twenties. That um, I guess somebody that was may have may have been raised in a in a uh, Catholic family um, that prayed a lot together and that that sort of was taught these basic tools of discernment would have done much earlier in their life. Mm-hmm. So like the thought of the priesthood like was never even proposed to me right. ever in my, in my whole life. Which is right? sad about if you went to Catholic school. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Catholic school. Yeah, I mean, I was like, I, was, I uh, Yeah, I mean, I was totally just. Uh, my school was known for sports. Let me put it that way. Gotcha. You know, one of the best, one of the best football teams in the state and everything. Gotcha. Unfortunately, gotcha. that's what it was. That's what it was known for. Um, I, you know, I think that any young man who truly understands the priesthood is, I mean, is should be incredibly attracted to it on a human level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that happened to me. And um, there were—I uh, met an incredibly uh, holy priest uh, in Vegas who had a profound impact on me. Yet my my way of thinking about discernment, including discerning the priesthood, was a little off. In, in terms of, let me put it this way: it's something that took me five years to think about. Um, I had this idea that uh, I mean, for one thing, kind of like a very Protestant idea of holiness still at that time, like the only way for me to, to be perfect, um, in, in one sense was to become a priest. Like that's the only, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have like a full appreciation of, of the lay vocation at that time. So, I mean, might've, um, kind of, uh, had a, had a a slightly distorted view of it. And I also thought that in order for me to, uh, properly discern, I, I had to like go to a seminary and sit in my room and pray really hard for God to show me what he wanted from me. And I, I didn't really have the kind of sacramental worldview, and mm-hmm. we could talk about this, because mm-hmm. I, I know that you wrote a, wrote a book on mm-hmm. it, um, where like every encounter that I have in my life, every mediator of desire that I encounter and commune with is in some sense, God um, showing me something of what he wants from mm-hmm. me. And it's in some way, a signpost of, of, you know, some ultimate desire. So you're right? talking or, like, or
0: like if, if just, it sounds to me that like you're saying like discernment you were seeing, like is a purely internal thing with no external verifiers. And that as you're kind of coming in, you're
1: starting to realize these external things matter too. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah, that at okay. all. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that any of the external things, um, were so rich and full of meaning, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, it, like, it was sort of like I needed to, it was very imminent. It was like, you know, lock myself in a room and, 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 you know, just, just let the eschaton just like so, drip over you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in the, in, and also, you know, I think uh having that encounter with, um, and just a, an amazing priest, mm-hmm. um, I, what I what I desired was his desire and his holiness mm. and that started to get lumped in with his 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 vocation which was as a priest and I started to not I didn't have a sense of personal vocation or how I was being called personally and it just took me a very a very long time to have a full uh, sort of appreciation of that and to let God really um really speak to me, Luke Burgess. Mm -hmm. Right. And it wasn't, it took me a long time to sort of hear that, to hear that personal voice. I think one of the issues in, in the church and in life in general is, well, and this is quite frankly, this is what Gerard talks about. Um, we, we look to other people to kind of like figure out what it means to be a, you know, a good Catholic or something like that. Right. And that's there's an aspect of that that seems true, right? I mean, because you know, like we we do, we do live as a community, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing in seminary. But we can also that can also make us lose sight of our um, uh, of the way in which of the, our lived experience of the faith will be just because of our history, right, and historical circumstances is something intensely personal and. There is an aspect of that, that I didn't fully appreciate, hmm. you know, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and I think that I was, I was sort of like finding, um, I, I kept looking to my right and my left and saying, well, that's, if I, if I was just a little bit more like that, if I was just a little bit more like this, um, which eventually sort of like took me sort of deviated my path hmm. a little bit. Hmm. And so like, would you say it was your time in seminary generally good then?
0: Oh yeah, yes. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it was it was it was a good it was a good thing. It was a a process. Uh, I mean, it was one of the best things that that's ever happened to me. Right. Frankly, this right. is why I say to people, it's like I think it's it's important.
0: You know, if you're if you have this inclination, I think this is part of the discernment process. And this is like I always say to like, I always want to argue like to dioceses, like maybe we actually need to obviously you need to have like your good psychological evaluations, blah blah blah, to admit guys to seminary. But I think we need to be a lot more um, open to sending guys to seminary, for example, not because. Because if the guy discerns out, they're going to be a great gift to the church through that formation process, right? Like that—that's that that's, that's, you're forming them. Then that that formation is not wasted. It's then going to carry over into their into their lay vocation, um, which is really really important. And um, um, and I think it's just important for people to hear, like,
1: yeah, not everyone who goes to seminary becomes a priest, and that's okay. <laughs> right yeah and I, I mean i i just had i had incredible support on the way in and and frankly when i left and my vocation director told me exactly what you just said you know because mm-hmm. um, i you know i it's 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 can be incredibly difficult i mean yeah a, i sort of lacked the sort of freedom to kind of like to leave um when even when i sort of felt like that's where i was being i was being called to leave right um, my vocation director said you know luke like this this time was not wasted in any way. Exactly. Like this, all of this has been a gift for you. Yeah. And then I I've, I now realize that more than I ever have. And that saying yes and entering was an incredibly, um, that the process itself of sort of detachment that was involved in, in entering was, I, I just now see when I look back on it, even though I didn't realize at the time how God was working in and through absolutely all of it, even the parts of seminary that were difficult, um, that I didn't like, um, you know, what, like what, getting up early okay. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You didn't like that. What else? Did, what else did, didn't you like about seminary?
0: This is your time what to, this is, about? this is, um, <laughs> this is a festivist episode. It's time
1: to air your grievances. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, did like, well, I did two years in California and I did two years, I did three years in Rome. Okay. So I was at St. John's in Southern California and then I did three years in Rome. Okay. Uh, my time in rome was tough because i was away from my family and my parish and my diocese Mm -hmm. for a very long time um and you know i I sort of at one point i began to feel like i was kind of like losing touch because life is just very different over there it is it's very different yeah (laughs) yeah so you know that that was tough um you know adapting to to a different way of life um Mm -hmm. and frankly like the i don't know how to say this um like the the American sort of way, I don't know, the, I don't know if you would agree with this or not. Right. But like, there's just the, the faith expresses itself differently in different places. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. And the Catholic church in Las Vegas is just very different than it is in Rome. Yes. And in Italy. I bet. bet. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was something that was a bit, that was tough. Um, and I also felt in that, uh, seminaries is, is there's a, there's an, a healthy way in which you have to die to yourself. Mm -hmm. And then there's another way in which that can, um, there's another, there's a, there's a sense in which um, essential parts of me, this part of how I discerned out. In fact, there was, there was, there was a sense in which I I felt like I, there was something that I needed to do, which was uh, like a good thing inside of me Mm -hmm. that was not, being allowed to, to I, I wasn't being, I wasn't finding a way to give expression to it. Right. Like right. sort of this create creative spirit or something that gave me joy that I, I know when I do it, you know, God, God is happy. Right. And, right. Yeah. Um, yeah like, yeah. W- yeah. Um, what's that expression from the Olympic runner? Like when I, when I run fast, God, um, Eric Liddell, I think is his name. Um, Anyways, he, he was he was a runner and he said, that's when I experience God's joy is when I run. Right. right yeah. yeah, run yeah.
0: It's kind of like, like so there, yeah, like you're living out charisms and it's like it's it's uh, and you know, you know, you have, you, one way to discern charisms is you just know that deep sense of peace and joy that only comes from God by doing these things.
1: Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, discernment is not a skill that is taught. Um, I mean, really, even in most Catholic schools, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's something that I think is usually learned in the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it takes it takes a while, right? It takes sort of practice and listening and in uh, yeah. a long time. And um, that's the greatest gift that seminary gave me, frankly, mm-hmm. was the gift of discernment and i had fantastic support and a spiritual director and the hardest thing about about not being in seminary quite frankly is is all of that support and the community right that i had there it's like out in the world you I mean i didn't i didn't even realize what a gift it was to be able to live with 250 other men um Mm-hmm. that just love the lord and we supported each other it was never easier for me to live the sabbath than it was in seminary you know um mm-hmm. and liturgical life and the rhythm frankly of yeah, yeah, life yeah, 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 yeah. and that rhythm of life is something i have to be much more intentional about as a layperson, right because yeah like i something i've been pondering a lot lately as a pastor is
0: there were times and ages where society we're, we're the like we're this is where like i'd call it like, good cultural catholicism that it, it seeps in so deeply that even society is ordered around these calendars and so it makes it and that gives life and it makes people want to go to the parish to go to mass to live out the liturgical seasons uh modern world uh is like antithetical to this in so many ways it just it just like usurps this rhythm of life and so you have to be it's such a gift to have it when you and it, it's it's almost like a, it's unnerving when you lose it even like for myself when I left seminary uh after or after you know I was done my formation um I, I didn't realize until after I left how much I loved praying the breviary in community uh with other guys uh they just how like I've, when I've been back to seminary a few times uh, I'm just like oh man I miss this I miss this this is so nice right and and Uh, and that's, and that's, um, I think in some ways too, that's something seminaries need to be more cognizant of, because especially like, yeah, you're going to a place like Rome where my seminary was a regional seminary. So you're, you're done. You're maybe with one or two other guys from your diocese, maybe. But then even when you're in from your diocese, you're all sent all over the place. So that community that you've had is just taken from you and you're then sent off. Even if you're with another priest, you're sent off into something completely new and we need to be better at like transitioning into this because the world does not have the supports for this anymore right and it, it is a real gift and um i think parishes could actually help foster this more like doing stuff like vespers once a month or something like that where praying the to breviary together in the community then it's like wait the liturgical
1: calendar matters right and this stuff just starts to seep in and yeah yeah well i have to say that i i didn't even know what the liturgy of the hours was until shortly before i became a seminarian and like for me that's some kind of a serious ball drop of catechesis right mm-hmm. basic catechesis i mean you know, the Liturgy of the Hours is a gift to the whole church. Anybody can, anybody can pray it. And, um, it's, it's one of the, I mean, it's just this rich gift of, of, of continual prayer. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because uh, on Ash Wednesday this year for Lent, the priest, um, explained the breviary during his homily on Ash Wednesday Hmm. and said, you know, this, this would be a great Lenten discipline and he proposed it mm-hmm. and uh, I took it up again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't prayed the breviary um, in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just reminded me of how important it, it is to me right? and my desire to do that. I mean, if not the whole thing, which I prayed in seminary, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the very least, like maybe morning and evening prayer, exactly. which is what I'm doing this Lent. Right. And it's, it's just a beautiful, it, it's helped my wife and I get into a rhythm, a rhythm of, of Lent and yeah. rhythm of the church. And
0: you, so you guys pray that together? Uh, when we can yeah. yeah
1: that you see then i I've, i know
0: of other families or couples who do that and i think that's again that's a beautiful thing where it's like i mean even again when you're paying it on your own it's fine but you can really uh speed through it <laughs> you know and uh um when you're praying with someone else it forces you to slow down and especially like uh with our young adult group here we always pray evening prayer after dinner before we get into our 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 discussion part and it's really beautiful it takes longer and you no one's complaining and everyone's like eager to pray. And it's been really cool actually in my end because like a lot of my young adults now they're starting to pray the breviary on their own because mm. they've had such a joyful experience of it. Uh, so these get, it's, it's interesting. Like this is very Gerard and Giosani, right? This joyful experience whereby mm. like something's been mediated to me. I've had this encounter that I want, it gives me life and I, I want that. And so right. I'm gonna start living this on my own now, right? And it just kind of seeps in because I agree. It's interesting because like, I think the liturgy of the hours is one of those things that in many ways it's actually a lot more popular than it's ever been in the church, but it's still quite hidden. Um, but I think that's been one of the great fruits of the council of its liturgical for reform has been this whole the breveries for everyone, if they
1: want. Right. Is it? I didn't realize. I wouldn't have thought that it's more popular than it's ever been. I guess one of the reasons could be like apps, right? Like the Magnificat app, yeah. um, or like Hello or Ibirevi or something like that. So it makes it more accessible. There's still something that is irreplicable about going to like solemn vespers that's chanted, and yep. you know some parishes do this like once a month or something. And I do that. He's raising his <laughs> hand. Um, mine in mine in DC does does too. Yeah. And um, and it, there's experiencing that for the first time, taking your children and, mm-hmm. you know, you get this taste of something because mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's a bit different in kind, you know, when you experience the chanting and the different rhythm exactly. than just praying it silently on your own or something yeah. very different about praying it in community, something very beautiful. We actually do it with like candlelit church kind mm-hmm. of like, yeah, yeah. it's got mm-hmm. giving you ideas. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's you very mean nice. so, desire right now, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, no, exactly. And it's, um, but it's also because it's, you can actually pray it in the vernacular now. Because mm-hmm. prior to the council, it was all Latin. So a yeah. lot of people wouldn't have known Latin. And so it was just, and it was a lot longer. <laughs> it would be a, it was a lot. Yeah. It was, what we do in four weeks now was done essentially every week. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, they kind of shortened it partially because, uh, yeah, when you're a diocesan priest, it's, there are times, there's actually a lot of times, for example, where I'm praying daytime prayer just before I'm praying evening prayer <laughs> because, the day gets away from you, or it is harder to get those rhythms going. But it, I think it's essential because we're not a rhythms actually important to being human mm. and and the liturgy of hours kind of forces us to enter into the rhythm of a day, just like and to build those habits of setting that rhythm and, and like bookending the day. And what a great way. Yeah. For a family or a married couple or whatever to just mark the day as best they can with each other. It, it becomes something like, you know, like the next part, like you pray, evening prayer. you know, okay. Our day has come to, like, our work day maybe has come to largely an end. And and now it's like, it's time to ease into the rest of the day. Or we're about to start the work that started with God. What a, and let's start that together. Like, that's just like, there's just so much built into those experiences that I keep on saying people, like, even like with the pandemic, I I look back now, I'm like, I would not, like, looking back, I would not stream Mass Hmm. anymore. I, I think that's done a lot of harm, more than good in many ways, at least locally in parishes. Like, I'm not against Mass being streamed, but it's just, Instead, I would be like, I want to encourage people to pray liturgy hours
1: on Sundays because mm-hmm.
0: that's actually liturgy yeah. you
1: can do in your home. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. There, there's this um, one of the things that I think technology is doing, and kind of modernism as a project in general is like place doesn't matter. It's very disincarnational, oh, right? Very d- disincarnational. Right. You, you are surprised me absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, are we best friends? <laughs> we are on Twitter, man. Um, yeah. uh, this, is, this it's, is like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yes, it's um, <laughs> well, we, I, yeah, we could just have the whole episode not even talk about Gerard. <laughs> um, it's it's, like, it's funny because I, I, um, th- yeah, I mean, I, I we we watched for there was a couple of months there where we there was no no parishes in our and where we were in West Michigan that really had mass. Um, I think one, one experimented with like having people sort of like at least come in the parking lot or something and go out to distribute communion, which seemed to be a kind of a, a compromise. Um, but I just going back to the liturgy of the hours yeah. thing real quick, I don't yeah. want to freak, cause I'm, I'm reading this amazing book right now about on silence by Cardinal Sarah. I don't know yeah. if, you've, if you've heard of this book, right? Yeah. It's like against the tyranny of noise. I think, um, yeah, forget the title but he he just tells a story about going to the grand chartreuse with the carthusian monks and um experiencing their um their the liturgy of the hours is prayed in the middle of the night i forget the name yeah, yeah, of it yeah. right it's, it's, um, they they um, wake up at 2:30 in the morning or something yeah it's not uh what is it now?
0: It's not Lauds, Louds. Louds is what they do actually at like I think early in the morning. It's not um, Matins, is it? Is that Matins. That's not, that's Matins that's it, yeah, Matins. Is it Matins? Yeah, okay. I think,
1: I think it's either Lauds or Matins. One of those two. One of those two. One of those two. Anyways. Yeah. But it, it's it's um, something that the Carthusians is part of their regular, you know, ritual. And they yeah. they pray it in the middle of the night. And um it's not something that I think most priests, you know, diocesan priests do, but it was it was sort of telling the story of how like that experience, just that particular um Liturgy of the Hours was different than the others because it was in the middle of the night in a dark church and barely see anybody's faces. And as I was reading it, I had this desire to, to, to participate in it. It's right. like... You know this is something that i've never experienced before and there's something particular and incarnational about that experience something embodied about that experience being tired and making your way to the chapel right mm-hmm. slogging your way there and being a part of that and i remember those times from seminary very well yeah. they're sort of like embodiment of being tired and going to pray yeah. with my brothers yeah it was, was that was quite beautiful yeah yeah that's
0: um there's
1: a, there's a it's
0: um yeah because essentially they're praying the office of readings in the middle of the night that's what that was the traditional time the idea is being Mm -hmm. that prayer should touch all times of the day it's it's Mm -hmm. god redeeming time right this is the whole point of praying Mm -hmm. the the hours is and this is why the monks exist is to redeem time in this way um and by ordering life around this uh you're you're showing that you're ordered towards that time is ordered towards eternity it's just like there's all these deep deep things with it um and in the like I was thinking of doing it this year, I just ran out of time to plan it, is uh, usually between Good Friday and Holy Saturday, you do the Tenebrae service, which is essentially this, but with a couple extra things, like you're knocking on the door because Jesus is entering into the gates of hell and and, and ready to redeem us, et cetera. Um, but you're supposed to do it like 1 or 2 a.m. That's the traditional time with just candlelit only, um, no accoutrements of, of musical instruments or anything um, because it is also, because it's really about the light, entering into the darkness right that the darkness does not overcome ever there's mm-hmm. a we, we never we never have liturgy that's ever purely dark like it's the the mm-hmm. light is always shining and it's really meant to show that god really does overcome the darkness of sin and death and he does it in all manners and always at all times and it's really really beautiful and i agree with like that tyranny of noise is such a, a massive thing i mean if i my, my really trad opinion is we shouldn't even have sound systems in the church but <laughs>
1: you know that's very um speaking this very uh, fellow canadian marshall McLuhan, i think he like had wrote some powerful things on the introduction of mm-hmm. the microphone and like formal structure and right. uh, I, i've went down a huge rabbit hole with McLuhan during the pandemic but I and i agree with most of what he's saying like yeah. we don't understand the way that things that seem maybe tiny or insignificant actually have relatively profound meaning, right? You have this entire church that's constructed for conducting noise and sound in a yeah. certain way. Yeah. And it sort of renders the whole project. It, it, it's, it changes something structurally is what
0: I'm saying. Right. Just two things there. Once I had, I had a meeting with, uh, my new maintenance committee a couple of weeks ago and something like, Oh, maybe we should put a couple of TVs in the church so that, you know, people could see the hymns and the announcements I said over my dead body. I said, and I gave them like a twenty-minute lecture on why there should be less, not more, technology in the church, and they like sat back, to like, "Huh? I never even, I never even thought of that. I just thought it'd be easier." I am like, "Yeah, that's that's not always a good discernment, right?" And they were just like, "Okay, you know what? I, I agree with you. That's fine." I am like, "Good." But uh, uh, a couple months ago, the sound system wasn't working properly at a weekday mass, and I used the and the scriptures just fit perfectly, and I just used it as a whole thing to say, "Notice how I a have to project louder, which means I actually have to slow down in my speech." Because I said, pay attention to your own experience of hearing right now, which we're not very good at anymore again, like so this gets to the silence thing. I said, you actually have to work to listen now. And when you have to work to listen, you're more apt to internalize the words you're hearing. So even with the scriptures being proclaimed there they have to be projected louder by this person. You actually have to work the muscles of your ears if you will to actually let these words seep into you to actually be heard. And that's actually a good thing. You're going to you're going to walk away from this experience having re- remembered it a lot more essentially. And I've had a lot of people say, "You know what? You're right. Mm. I never I didn't experience that before. I've kind of thought about maybe one Sunday just not using the sound system. Just just for the heck of yeah. it, you know. Um, but yeah, and then that's the place. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah,
1: I mean, that makes me think, I apologize if you can hear that I'm in Washington, DC, and I have military helicopters flying over me every once in a while. Um, it's all good. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it makes everything is so easy and passive, like passive receptivity to content, content, yes. content, content. And when I'm hearing you say that, Um, you know, it just, it reminds me of like the way a good wine is made, right? You want the the roots to have to work a little bit more, right? Actually. Um, and it's, it's like every, if everything's passive and easy, there's some, there's something lost there. I mean, it's almost like it washes over me and I don't fully appreciate the sacrament of the word or that, that I'm, that I'm receiving and then sort of, and, and entering into and participating in that. It's just kind of coming at me in the stream. Yeah. So part of for me part of my spiritual life has been like active just against this tyranny of noise and tendency towards like passive engagement it's been like trying to actively engage this is it goes back to jusani right like just actively engaging whenever possible yes well and it gets
0: this is why like it's funny because then in our modern culture then too around femininity and stuff like this Uh, and like what I'd call like your toxic masculinity stuff on the internet and everything around this, like, um, attack on receptivity. Like I'm big on receptivity, but it's an attack on receptivity. If it's seen in this way, it's passive. You're almost like powerless, right? Mm -hmm. You feel powerless. It's like, no, no. Christian receptivity is actually something active. It's actually the greatest form of action, uh, Mm -hmm. whereby you're allowing something in, but you don't just allow it in without judgment. Right, you have to judge the experience. You have to judge mm. the encounter. You have to judge what you're receiving, and then to see if it's worth appropriating and stuff. In other words, it involves your will far more than just sitting there passively letting content come in through the TV, the internet, whatever, blah blah blah. So it's very, um, very interesting. Uh, I want to nerd out for a second on this whole thing about place because, like, when you said that, I'm like, oh, man, like this is we're, we are we're, we are we are we are. um this is, this is, we are, we are kindred spirits here because this has been my big thing. But like, I always say that the church has, has, um, not taken seriously the theological effect of the automobile. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and like, cause you notice this, like when you go to Europe versus North America, for example, right? Europe cities are smaller. You can kind of walk it where you need to get to everything and everything you need is in walking distance the idea of a parish is that it's in this walking distance area. The priest wouldn't necessarily even have to have a car necessarily because he can kind of get there but with the car. What it does is it allows us to like, it's like Lewis's vision of hell and do and the great divorce, right? You just kind of get further and further apart from each other. Um, and it's, it's what it's done. Is it like we've abstracted space and place and mm. we don't see it as actually vital and important, And so grace then becomes limited in its effects. Like I gave a homily in January about like, what if, what if we thought about the fact that grace is so powerful, it transforms everything, even the land around us. Mm. I think Europe is a testament to this actually, in it's geography. Um, And it's not just geography, but it's, um, it's like city planning, et cetera, whereby place proper is always localized because it's meant to be incarnate. It's meant to be like you were saying earlier, it's this embodiedness of it all. There's a reason, for example, uh, it, between like the collapse of the Roman Empire and and the emergence of the high Middle Ages, people tended to f- flock around the monasteries. Right. you're close to When you're close to something, that's where you build community. That's where you build life. So like Christians, for example, Catholics, they feel isolated. Why? Because we actually don't live close to each other. We don't actually share life with each other. And when you're mm-hmm. in proximity, Is one of the most important things to being human yeah like i i was we were just actually just the other night i gave a talk at ucm which is like a protestant uh, christian club at the university campus and they just held it in one of university buildings and all my young adults said because i host young adults in my rectory and they said yeah father harrison like what we do is way better because it's Mm. in a home Mm. exactly exactly so i don't know like i just riff
1: off the whole place thing you're just talking about because i want to listen yeah, yeah i mean well it, it calls to mind the whole like parish boundaries kind of question i don't yes. know where, if you yes. have a stance on that but yes. I, I think it's i think it's important yeah yes. I think it's really yes. I think it's really important and I, i'm like a big advocate of walkable cities so, frankly it's one of the things that i miss most about living in italy yeah for for three years yeah. um one of my favorite books to this day is a book by a jesuit um named daniel Liu. I think it was written in the late '60s or early '70s, called "Prayer is a Political, Political Problem." problem. Yeah, you know this book.
0: I I read it a few months ago. Finally, I know Jean it's, Daniel very
1: well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really an amazing book to read today, right? He he just talks about simple things like the structure of a city and, um, you know, the bell tower of a church, you know, being the tallest building in the city. Um, these are all sacramental kind of signs or at least like imbues the city and reminds people of what's most important and the, the bells of the Angelus ringing um, in a city small enough where everybody can hear them. I mean, imagine mm-hmm. just that simple example right there. Mm-hmm. I've been in cities in Europe where you hear the Angelus bells mm-hmm. ringing. I mean, the tourists have no idea what in the heck it means, most yeah. most of them, right? But I mean, there's something I, I, there's something really important about that to me. Um, to the point where, you know, I, I really crave living in a city like that at some point mm-hmm. in my life. I really do. I'm
0: trying to form my parish around this idea, essentially. Like, I already have mm-hmm. parishioners starting to look around buying land around where the parish building is. Wow. And how, the how, th- big
1: is the, how big is the, the
0: parish or the city? It's, uh, it's 110,000 people, which is okay. it's the second largest city for Vancouver Island. Uh, okay. it's, the problem is weird. It's it's very long and narrow. Mm -hmm. um so i have like the bottom half of the city plus another township called cedar which is south so it's pretty large territorially i'd say um but like my idea is to say like no we should be buying like all as many houses as we can around the parish building area but also good investment because where we are that area is going to be uh worth a lot more in 10 years than it is now but like like but you're buying houses then too. Right? But we're going to mediate grace, even how we do financially structure things. Like we buy houses, but then we start renting out for reduced rates to Catholic students, mm-hmm. to um, to immigrant families who are moving here who can't afford the current rental prices. Um, you maybe start. A friend of mine got me on this idea. You start a small uh, a small loan service where you're offering like non sinful rates of like money day loan places that offer like forty percent so they can keep you in their system but you offer like really competitive low interest rates to help people kind of get out of that being stuck that way right um and that we start using our money like this is the thing we still live faith in a protestant way more or
1: less we evangelize in a Protestant way too. Oh. Oftentimes. So I, you should invest in a really good Italian restaurant in the town too, because there's no better Catholic way of evangelizing than breaking bread, eating really good food, drinking like, good wine. There's a, there's a great one. The, that, there's a great one about two blocks from my, or a block and a half from the church. It doesn't need to be Italian. I'm, yeah. I'm biased, but it could be, yeah, it could yeah. Be I, I good actually, good food, well, no, like right? one of my ideas is company. I want
0: a parish pub around like right where the parish, where the yeah. building is. Right. Mm-hmm. Because that's what gathers people. Like, um, but I also like want people to say like, like, So, but I also want to take modernity seriously. So like, I want to say to people, your home is, is like, uh, it's like, a, it's like a quasi parish in a way. It's like a quasi piece of the, it's like a quasi parish building where it can mediate grace in your particular area of influence. And that that's where we start to like, grace is meant to be mediated and we are its mediators through the church. Um, and that's supposed to touch like literally everything and i think again like europe is the testament to that that fact that it was just kind of done it wasn't it wasn't necessarily um consciously done so like we have to take the fact yeah okay the car exists i have to drive 10 minutes to go somewhere to to go anoint someone at the hospital or whatever fine i can accept that that's the reality i live in but let's use that reality to reform it again so that grace mediates there because then that be
1: what does is grace brings life and when grace brings life it brings others in Absolutely. I mean, I, I'll go all the way back and just share a little piece of my story of my conversion in Las Vegas that I didn't tell in the beginning because it's very long. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was there was a family there that, I mean, they, they simply would invite me over to their home and I'd walk into their home and it didn't look like a church, you know, there's nothing super weird about it. And we, but it was sheerly the, and they had six kids and it was just the, they clearly practiced the virtue of, the, of hospitality you know mm-hmm. and, and it was so incredibly powerful there was in an, an attractive right like as benedict talks about this so much like you know the, it was like my my desire for a richer spiritual life was grew every single time that i went into this home yep and I thought to myself like that's the kind of like christian hospitality i hope that i can show to other people Mm -hmm. someday Mm -hmm. and we didn't even necessarily even need to be talking about the faith Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it was there was just something about the joy the friendship the communion the warmth the love the the clear charity that i was sensing that had a profound impact on me and I'll, i'll just never forget it so like those that is something that we as a church should be way better at than the, than the broader culture. You know, I I am of the opinion that
0: the primary charism of families is hospitality. Like Mm -hmm. the lay married couple vocation is your, your first charism is largely hospitality because I, I know families like that in my parish too. And, and I know families like that all over the place. I know a family in about an hour from where I am right now. They, they put an addition on their house, like a big addition for one reason. They said, "Well, yeah, I mean, it benefits us as a family too." But they said, "No, we want this place to be a gathering space for people to come to and hang out and mm-hmm. and gather and to learn about the faith, or just to gather as a community, etc." And it really is. It's like the gathering place. Like they even they hosted my 40th birthday party for me because it was big enough to. But it was homey. I was like, "It's better in a hall. Way better in a mm-hmm. hall." Mm-hmm. And and it's a, we have to like develop a theology of the home essentially again, mm-hmm. um, because it really this is. Um, those natural sacramental encounters would really be something really vital or like, even like for myself as a priest, like I've been starting to have these ideas of like, what if like once a week, instead of having weekday mass at a home or sorry, at the parish, I start going, going to people's homes and they can invite a few people over and you have mass there. But uh, mm. the idea of saying like this space is sanctified, especially then when you go to places with children, well, that thing that we did at our house is the thing we do at church, like it, it gets, and it's not weird and foreign anymore. It's integrated. Yeah. And when it be- and when it becomes integrated, it's like it becomes normal.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yep. Amen. Oh man. Okay. Right. Okay. We we should do some Gerard. So, okay, because like out of all of this, and 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 uh uh you've had such a, a variety of experiences and even your current job um is, is so as is very unique in the church in general. Um, but like you are a big Rene Girard fan. Mm-hmm. So, how did you come across Gerard? Like, like, because I think I agree with you. I think Gerard is, uh, as I've been listening more and more to him, I've I've DM'd you and texted you a few times. Hey, like, what is he? Do you know where he talks about this or anything like that? Because I think he is. I've always been fascinated by his his theories, um, um, and he's actually, I would say, even largely reasonably accessible in many ways. Like his like his general theory is he's it's so refined that he's able to communicate it in such a way that. I think most people would be able to come to understand it quite quickly. Um, but, like, who is this guy and why do you love him?
1: <laughs> well, I encountered him on a silent retreat. And my spiritual director on that retreat gave me as a reading on the first day of the retreat uh, in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. The, the woman caught in adultery and he, he asked me to read it and reflect on it. And I did. And I went back to him the next day and we talked about it d- during our 30 minute meeting. And he kept assigning me the same reading for the rest of the five day silent retreat uh, to the point where I was like frustrated, you know, it was mm-hmm. like w- whispering to my friends, like, Hey, is he giving you the same reading every day? Um, <laughs> breaking the silence. And um, I mean, it, it turns out that he was familiar with Rene Girard and he thought it was important for me to understand some of what was going on in the story, namely kind of the, the mimetic mechanism, right? That was happening there, the scapegoat mechanism. We could talk a little bit more about that, but he, he sent me back, you know, down the mountain basically every single day, I'm getting all frustrated. And then at the very sort of end of the retreat, he said, you know, I think if you read this book, Um, by this guy named Rene Girard called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. You might see some other like sort of layers meaning the story. And I was kind of like whiffing on it. I wasn't quite understanding what was going on. And I did and subsequently got read everything I could get my hands on from Girard and just realized that you can approach his work from so many different angles, right? If you're interested in literature, his first book is on literature if you're interested, like he's got a whole book dedicated to Shakespeare and what's Mm -hmm. actually going on in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. He's got a highly theological work. I see Satan fall like lightning. He's got works that diagnose modernity, like um, battling to the end. Um, It's a very apocalyptic book. I realized how important Gerard was one, because I I thought that he was diagnosing modernism in the most powerful way that I'd ever seen um, for sure. And I saw him as having a lot to say about, really about spiritual theology and the spiritual life. And that Mm -hmm. is something I don't think he gets enough credit for. Like he, Gerard is often talked about in this highly intellectual way, but I think he had profound insights into the nature of the spiritual life, the nature Mm -hmm. of desire, which Mm -hmm. uh, I, I see as kind of the heart of spiritual life, right? Desire. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, you know the teleology of desire being, you know, it's very August- Gerard is very Augustinian, right? Our mm-hmm. hearts are restless unless they rest in you. And Gerard's fundamental topic was human desire, the nature of desire, how it can become disordered, mm-hmm. what's properly ordered desire. And I, I, he just helped answer a lot of a lot of questions for me. I can explain what I mean by any of those things, but I just right, wanted yeah, to give yeah. that introduction for now. Yeah, no, um, I yeah, I encountered him in
0: seminary myself a bit. And I read, like, I was like, oh, this is really interesting stuff. This is interesting. And then as is want, you know, as want to happen, you're like, okay, that's fine. And um, myself, even like in the last year, I've been really finding myself uh, really like he's on my to read everything possible once I'm done my thesis. Like I want to, I actually, I'm going to read some of him for my thesis because um, he's going to actually really help me with my apocalyptic element to my thesis. Mm. But um, mm. um, I'll tell you about my theory. Uh, afterwards but uh, because I don't want to I can't have it get out too much yet otherwise uh, I don't want someone stealing my idea for my thesis Um, but Mm -hmm. uh, um, I've always been fascinated by him because like because like also from what I understand and maybe this might be a nice nice little bridge to the whole question of his theory is he was a last Catholic right
1: before earlier on he was earlier on until um, so To give a little context on his life, uh, Girard was born in 1923 and then came to the US right after World War II. And then uh, from 1945 until 1959, he was basically a lapsed Catholic. I mean, not only was he a lapsed Catholic, he was kind of um, a French intellectual who was relatively hostile to the idea of Catholicism in general. Right. Right. You know, and it was in 1959 when he, while he was writing his first book, that he was having a profound conversion experience on a train to Bryn Mawr College, hmm. and um, so ni- from 1959 on, he was a devoted Catholic, and then he spent the last couple of decades of his life at Stanford.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I, that's I've, I. The interviews I've been listening to, he he kind of skirts around his conversion a bit. Not, and I think even for myself, it's 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 something I've grown into more myself, which is no, This is a deeply intimate. Personal gift, and one wants to be sparing, not because you don't want to devalue the gift by oversharing it and stuff like that. So,
1: I've been mm-hmm. fascinating. That's interesting that it was on a train ride. I didn't know that. For he, example, yeah. he um, he was inducted into the into the French Academy, and mm-hmm. it's one of the few times that he talked about uh, the experience that he had on the train. Oh, and he speaks about it in somewhat mystical terms, like he used the language. Everything came to me at once like almost like a locution or something like that. I, I mean, it's who knows what, what actually happened. But it, he basically said my, the whole rest of my life was working out this single dense insight that I received on the train. So it strikes me as some kind of a revelation, right? Like right. He, he received something and then realized that his vocation was to spend the rest of his life trying to figure out what 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 it is that he'd received is the way that it kind of seems.
0: And it then makes sense then too why he gives a lot of thought to questions around like apocalypse and stuff because revelation is a they're, 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 uh, they're bedfellows, those two terms, right? Revelation and apocalypse. So,
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. um, okay. So what does, what does he say? Let's, let's, let's just, let's, let's just kind of, um, give a, a, very, you know, 30,000 foot worldview, uh, a vision of, of his,
1: his general argument and idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to, um, I'll, I'll, let me introduce this using a word that you and I have, um, exchange a lot of messages about, cause I know it's important to you. Uh, I think that mediation is at the heart of what Gerard yep. is talking about. Right? Mm-hmm. And against this idea of modernism, that it is we who, um, we, who give meaning to everything. Um, we, who determine ideas, we, who even determine our own desires. Mm-hmm. is what he diagnosed as problematic this idea that is it is we who determine everything and gerard saw that the the structure of human life and certainly the structure of of the church is one of profound mediation um like i i would say that you know we we have Direct access to reality, but we don't have direct access to the fullness of reality or the fullness of truth, right? <laughs> and that, and that we we rely on mediators in, in order to 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 re- we have to receive these things. And Gerard's focus was on the mediation of desire. You know that that our that desire itself is mediated, and he gave a name to this mimetic desire. Mimetic being um, a, a word for imitation he didn't call it imitative desire for a reason because he thought that mimetic desire was usually uh, hidden and often subconscious or unconscious mm-hmm. but he saw our propensity for imitation as as the fundamental structure of of our desire so in a way all desire is is mediated in positive ways and negative ways right and girard did an analysis going all the way back to the earliest pages of scripture you know pointing out that you know Eve in the garden you know didn't necessarily have the idea to eat the forbidden fruit until it was suggested to her right so mm-hmm. by 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 a mediator so there we as we go through life you know we various ideas and desires are mediated to us some are good, some are not so good. Some are leading us to God and some are not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the best Satan can do, right, is to sort of like propose things or suggest things and to be a mediator, which we can reject, right? And Gerard sort of in, began to see this, how mimesis and mimetic desire played out throughout scripture and how in its negative form, it leads to conflict and to rivalry and and to violence. And he's, he focused a lot on, on that aspect of it, right. Mm -hmm. Where mediation can sort of, um, he called it, it's interestingly, he called it deviated transcendence where, you know, we, we find, we find a mediator of desire and we can begin to think that the mediator is the, uh, well, we can begin to idolize the mediator or ascribe Mm -hmm. more to the mediator right but then then we should yeah you're collapsing
0: this thing that they're making present with themselves yes yeah yes. yeah this is very interesting too this is very maurice blondel uh more mm. blondel makes some similar arguments in Laxion around idolatry and, and mediation uh, from a more meta- metaphysical level but yeah
1: yeah well you know gerard does say that um ultimately uh, all desire is metaphysical desire, meaning it's a desire for being or for the fullness of being. Mm-hmm. And he, he, as I interpret him, that mm-hmm. can go in one of two ways. Metaphysical desire can lead um, this desire for being. If God is not a part of that search for desire, or is not, you're not participating in that, can lead to Dostoevsky's Underground Man. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a book that Gerard talks a lot about. But it seems like the Christian life is uh, is finding the fulfillment of that desire for being in, in communion with God. Mm-hmm. So think me- metaphysical, like desire being ultimately, all desire is a des- desire for being, Gerard said. And if we take that in Augustinian terms, that seems to me to be like at the heart of the spiritual life at at the heart of the spiritual journey. And we find a rest in that communion with God. Yeah. So I can, understand now why you're saying how you see him as really important for like spiritual theology
0: then. Right. Because Mm -hmm. um, in the end, then kind of getting back to your earlier experiences around discernment um, we can't grow in the spiritual life locked in a room alone. We need others. Like I actually, even in Mysterio, I think I remember writing a part about like how, the members of the church mediate christ's presence to us like that's the whole goal that's the whole point and so they help us actually grow in the spiritual life like that's that that is their job that is that is what the church's job is you and me as baptized christians everyone who's listening is Christ, like through our actions and examples make christ present make him desirable and thus help make others want to desire him um i was you know i have to be pretty broad because it was something from from spirit from doing spiritual acts for someone but they just said to me like in a, an encounter with someone who who was a very devoted Catholic uh, in their death, they said it was just the most real thing I ever encountered in my life, Mm. right? That the person, because that's the thing, I think mediation works well when the person, at least in that personal sense, like that human sense, it it works itself best when the person humbly sets themselves aside to the reality and let the reality do its thing. Um, When you're humbly submissive, to reality doing what it needs to do through you, right? That this this is mm. this is the whole this is the 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 Christocentric thing. And I think so like with me with that then it's like Mises for him, and this is part of his argument for the truth of Christianity, right? Is that Christ both reveals the scapegoat mechanism and undermines it at the same time. Like right. form and content, method and idea are are simultaneous in the Christ event.
1: Right. So, so um, yeah, it's very von Balthasarian, I guess, like, yes. you know, Christ is the, is the form of revelation and the content of yes. revelation, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think Gerard ever talked about von Balthazar, but yeah, in, in that event, Gerard would say in the event of um, Christ, passion, death and resurrection um, was the sort of the, 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 the scapegoat mechanism, in other words, the way that he, the the violence that we do as humans, not willed by God, was sort of revealed um, in in the in its fullness on the cross, mm-hmm. and in Christ subverted it uh, at the same time, right? And that's why Gerard's book is called "I See Satan Fall Like Lightning," right? Sa- you know, Satan sort of using this. Um, old mechanism of scapegoating violence was completely subverted and and, and turned on him. So yeah, Gerard is um, revelation plays a huge role in Gerard, to the point that he said, I'm actually not saying anything new. I'm just um I'm just sort of taking insights straight out of the gospels and sort of um, trying to give a, a slightly different. Uh, perspective on them. Yeah, right? he has a whole thing about originality. So, yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, and and you know, he uh, history was also important to Gerard, mm-hmm. right? He saw meaning in history and the way that history revealed mm-hmm. things about. I think I'm talking about your thesis right now a little bit. so Yeah, yeah, too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no. Yeah, no yeah. This is why, like, I'm like, this is why I'm interested because I'm like
0: and I know we were talking about this, like, I'm like, man, no, like Ratzinger and Gerard, I think have a lot of crossover. And I think partially Mm -hmm. in part for Ratzinger it's because he's actually quite formed by the French school of thought in general. um, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is very fascinating. So uh, that's, I'm like, man, there, there are connections here that people need to, to break open and break out with because um, it's really important. Like, yeah, history actually has an importance to being, which is important for Catholics who tend to just see truth as this abstract, this abstract thing. Right. Um, no, it like again context form um, shape place time these things help we you need that mediation to make the absolute known um and history is a vital part of that um just as a quick example and i, I don't know just as a quick i don't know what your time is like i'm good to go okay, yeah, okay I, I can go yeah okay good yep. um um i think One way to help people understand is because, like you know, it's it's really cool. It's 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 an amazing idea, and I think the example that he uses a lot, and it's one that I thought of too when I was starting to read him, is just look at two kids, two boys, Mm -hmm. two three-year-old boys. There's one, there's one dump truck to play with, right? One goes for it, and the other wants it now, right? That child has mediated the desire that this thing is desirable by the fact that he just takes it for himself. And the other child then says, "Well, I want this." And what happens is a conflict, right? This is the then this is the this is the the mimetic mechanism playing itself
1: out in a negative way. Is is this a good example? You think to help people? Understand yeah, it's, it it's a-, a great example. And and just to drive it home even more, I mean, imagine turning ten toddlers loose in a room with ten toys in it. So there's one toy per toddler, and let's just for the sake of argument imagine that they're all equally cool. Okay, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but what will, they won't all just find a toy and play with it. You know what's almost inevitably going to happen is that one of them will find a toy, and the other one will become fixated on it because that one wants it. Will be drawn to it, and then the two of them will reinforce one another's desire for the same toy. And then before you know it, they'll draw in two or three other other toddlers, and before you know it they might all be hovering around the same exact one right so like it almost endows this one toy it's not that much different from the others with some kind of mystical meaning or value mm-hmm. right so it's it almost creates like artificial scarcity mm-hmm. in that situation right. right if you think about it in economic terms right So this can happen in all different parts of life is Gerard's point. He's like, we don't actually outgrow this kind of behavior. In fact, we do it very often as adults, right? Right. You have one person who like desires a certain sort of career path and that can hold a tremendous sway or attraction to another person simply if they, if that, if that's an important mediator to them, maybe it's your older brother or somebody like that, right? Um, That can, that affects us at the level of desire because we're social creatures, Right? We're not autonomous, independent entities that generate our own desires. And this is, I think, a product of modernity, right? That, you know, my I, I generate my desires ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just part of my, you know, core authentic, you know, self, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and I just take them all for granted Which and is, I don't actually discern them. Right. And there's a great irony
0: there, right? Because that whole idea has been mediated to them. Mm-hmm right that that that's the great yeah. irony of the whole thing is their idea that i create my own desires ex nihilo is not an idea i have created ex nihilo <laughs> it's not a desire exactly. to ex nihilo right this is the this is the great irony of modernity and i think because this is his other thing is that really he says modernity is impossible without christianity and actually christianity is so cultural we don't like I don't want to get into this stuff because I think it is really cool, but I just like, you know, we can go on forever around this. But uh, like his whole stuff around the victim, for example, and 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 this modern obsession around the victim. Uh, he says impo- this is this is the social seeping in of Christianity into society that it's secularized, but it's fundamentally still Christian in its mm-hmm. idea. He says this does not exist in the history of the world otherwise.
1: Mm hmm yeah and and we gerard says we we can become fixated on on models or people that we view as rivals in some way and in my view christianity and secular culture have in some ways become rivals to one another in in unhealthy ways right mm-hmm. where i think it's a mistake for the church to be looking at secular culture and constantly sort of like feeling like it needs to play catch up or something like that. Right. Right. Like, Oh, that, like I, well now we need to adopt AI and we need to have a cryptocurrency and all these things like, or else we're going to left behind that. I think that prevents us from like the, the newness of, of Christianity, like in Christ, um, that I think it, I think it distracts us from the re- the real renewal that maybe needs to happen in my mm-hmm. view and what is that What's that re- real renewal so the I, let me this is a good segue actually into an event i'm hosting uh, okay, later this year <laughs> so um in in october i'm hosting an event at catholic university called novitate uh, which means newness and it comes from the vulgate translation of saint paul's um letter to the Romans in the 12th chapter where he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, it's always been like one of my favorite verses in scripture. Um, it's always fascinated me and I've, I've wondered what it means. And Gerard has helped shed a lot of light on that. Okay. So novitate is, is means, and actually there's, depending on how you translate it, He can even be saying, we have to develop new senses, right? Like a new, the Vulgate translates it as novitate, like sensus, I forget the other, the other Latin word, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. this is fascinating to me. And the Greek of that is, uh, Paul says, um, don't be conformed, but he's actually saying, don't Schematize yourself. Right? <laughs> don't 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 be conformed to any external schema or scheme or pattern that you see in the world, because yes. in the end, they will always be empty. And he opposes the word schema or scheme, or morphe, which is permanent form, to metamorphosis in the next uh, part of that verse, right? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here I think we get to what Gerard would name in his in his last work. He he coined a new word in his very last work. And he said there's such a thing maybe as intimate mediation. And he never quite explained what that means, but as far as I can tell it's grace. <laughs> right? There's like some there's a theology of grace that never quite fully made it into Gerard's work before he mm. passed in 2015. Mm. But as I'm as I'm thinking of what Paul is saying, And I'm thinking about Gerard and how often external mediators of desire or models of desire patterns in the world that we see, what the culture is doing, what this guy over here is doing, what we hear on the news, um, being conformed to those patterns will never lead to the kind of interior transformation through grace that we can achieve with participation in life in Christ, right? Participation in his life, death, and resurrection is something that happens in this intimate um, way when we're truly participating in that. And this is what I think is, this is why I say Gerard is like spiritual theology for me because he's made that passage by Paul come completely alive. And that's, by the way, the theme of the whole gathering in in D.C., at Catholic University in October, is going to be looking at what what does conformity mean as a Christian and as a Catholic? What does it mean to conform or to not conform? The Mm -hmm. things we should conform to, are there forms of conformity that we should reject? And St. Paul's verse in the letter to the Romans is the kind of, uh guiding those are the guiding words for this gathering but i think it's intimately related to what gerard is talking about
0: yeah i mean as it shows you to really i mean gerard's very Pauline. then then and end. i mean you, you can and you get this when you listen to him you're just like man is he loves paul he just thinks like paul is just because like he takes the like he's like paul's the only one who gets it spirit the spiritual realities these powers and principalities they're actually important he's also incredibly augustinian this is like good city of god uh theology that gerard's uh proposing here which is the world fundamentally is fallen it is under these powers and principalities we have to exist in this world so the church like this is augustine's argument about like how does okay but the fact is we still live within these we still are within these schemas right we are like these schemas still exist the world is structured around them still how does the church exist within that without being consumed by it right which is um which is i think a very important question uh that we that one needs to ponder it but 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 paul's trying to say is like you can exist in it but don't allow it to be the way that it forms you like like there's a new schema Mm -hmm. right christ is the new schema right the new schema is the body of christ Mm -hmm. right and uh and that happens through participation, as you said, though, which is sacramental. Uh, it's Pauline. like I, I people are probably tired of me saying this on the Paul podcast, but like my favorite phrase of St. Paul's is two words in Christ. <laughs> that's it, right. Like that's and there's your intimate mediation. Hmm. right? It's in Christ. The church is the intimate mediation, right? because it's it's Christ mediating himself to himself in and through us, right? Hence why Paul will say stuff like, uh, we make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, right, and, and so on, it's, or until Christ comes to to full completion, right? This is Christ mediating himself to himself in the body to become its fullness, it's uh, to become fully in Christ, which is the goal of all humanity in the new Adam. So this is like, oh my, yeah, like I, I could talk for hours on this stuff. So um, um, I'm just like with the conference, then like so like, hey, witness, like why did you, why did you want to do this? And, and what is, so you're hoping then to, to kind of explore this theme of, of how do we, how does, how does this intimate mediation of grace look? Um, why should people go to this mediate desire to them, you know, mediate the, mediate <laughs> desire to them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, like I said, Gerard is, I think a seminal thinker who's, we're only beginning to understand, um, his, his thought, mm-hmm. I think. I truly believe that hundred years from now he'll be seen as a, a truly great um, thinker, maybe even doctor of the church, along with Benedict, by the way. Um, and but Gerard was not a theologian; he was a philosopher and social theorist. Um, it's going. He, I don't believe that Gerard has received proper treatment as um, as a Catholic, right? For one thing, right? So that's that's one of the goals here and to bring together people that have been thinking about things like you have, Father, like mm-hmm. mediation, mm-hmm. and to to try to look at Gerard and go a bit deeper and, and really understand like what's going on here and what are the implications for how we should live in, in the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. right? Um, a- as a church, as Christians, this is going to be an interdisciplinary gathering, though. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not limited to Christians or even Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be, I think, some of the some of the best things happen when you just get people that know that want to dialogue with one another and share insights. Mm-hmm. We've only scratched the surface here, and getting 150 to 200 people in the same room having conversations about some of these questions will lead to good to good fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, I invite anybody who's interested to to check it out. Um, novitateconference dot org, uh, is the website. Um, you can apply, um, there's limited, limited space, but I think, you know, the goal is to make it not just an intellectual, uh, exercise, mm-hmm. but, but one where we're actually, um, I mean, there's going to be liturgical life will be part of the experience too. One that I hope will actually help lead to some form of renewal, um, at, at a, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say at an ecclesiological level, but it, I mean, at least at a personal level for some of the people that are there, mm-hmm. um, to just give them a, a new way of seeing things and certainly just to introduce Gerard. I mean, this mm-hmm. will be an introduction to Gerard. You don't have to be, have thought or even be familiar with Gerard's work to, to be there and to come. Mm-hmm. And there'll be plenty of scholarships for students that just want to have some contact and some introduction. Awesome. And it's in DC. It's going to be at the Catholic University of America in DC. Awesome. That's correct.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really important thing to be doing. I, 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 am already like thinking about going full on Gerard over the Paschal uh because it's just like, it's just so much there. Um, but I, I, I agree with you. I think he's important. I never really thought of him in that way about spiritual theology. Now you're kind of piquing my interest there because you're right already. I'm like intuiting that you're right. Uh, but to unpack that, but like again, he's going at it from a philosophical level. Um, but he's not, and I think I, I think that's important because there will be sometimes he says something he'll be like, but theologically I don't know if he can say that. I'm like, well, he's not speaking as a theologian; he's speaking as a as a philosopher, as a cultural anthropologist, as a literary critic. Like, you, you have to, he, and I think he's very French in that way. Let the disciplines that you're working in to stay within the confines of them. And I'm happy to speak outside those things, but I'm not going to like let those methods bleed into each other unnecessarily to then confuse it. Because I think that's actually one of his great gifts. He's a subtle evangelizer in that way, uh, by right. en- by entering into into a, a very worldly academic form to say, no, like there's actually tr- there
1: is truth here. Let's talk about it. And in fact, he was but um, he had a rough time in academia because he w- he became a Catholic, you know, right. and uh, but he subtly evangelized. And he was not a theologian. Um he was fortunate to have a pen pal and good relationship with a priest, Raymond Schwager, who was a theologian, who helped Gerard see some of the theological implications of what he was saying. And Gerard had no idea. And he there was a tremendous evolution between the early Gerard. And the later Gerard, in, for instance, and in how he understood um, the crucifixion mm. and as as an event that revealed the scapegoat mechanism and sort of atonement theology and all kinds of fast. Gerard didn't understand that. This is why. This is exactly why it's important to bring Gerard's thought into contact um, with theology. Yes, uh, and outside of his discipline. And, and just to give you one more example of, mm-hmm. of why I think this is related to spiritual theology. There's some there's something deeply related to like Ignatian discernment in Rene Girard. Mm-hmm. So I come into contact with some mediator in the world. You know, we live in a fallen world and this person has affected me or mediated some desire to me. It's this is a, As I understand and this is fundamental to sort of discernment and the Ignatian style of discernment is sitting there with my desires and asking basic questions like, where did this come from? is this from God or not? Mm-hmm. Right. Basic fundamental questions. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, ultimately I want what God wants for me, right. To conform my will, um, not what I want. And, and there should be a conformity of wills. Right. And mm-hmm. in some sense I, I want to understand God's will in my life and like, how are people mediating, um, things to me right and what how do i how do i make sense of this person that i came into contact with and the way that so all of these questions are things to bring to prayer um and there's a process of discernment that we we need to go through in order to understand why we desire the things that we desire where they're ultimately leading um so luckily i think there's going to be at least a couple of people there that will speak to that um Mm -hmm. better than i can um and, and, and just begin to understand i um
0: as you're talking there, I'm like, oh, well, now you can take a, give a Girardian view of why Donatism is wrong as a heresy, right? Like why Donatism is a heresy, right? Because Donatism, for those who don't, don't know or remember, is the heresy that you can do certain moral evils or acts that are contrary to the life of faith, that like denial of, of Christ or the church. Um, that would actually essentially like kill off grace permanently. Like like mm. so you'd stop being ordained or you're, you're, you can't validly confect the Eucharist and Augustine. Deeply against this, and so what Gerard's saying is like, and so it gets to your discernment thing. It also gets to Gerard, right? Which is like, yes, even us, we have fallen schema in us that we've ordered our life around. And these fallen schema that the discernment is saying what's fallen and what's not, and and in the church, it says sin does not have its absolute hold. It can't. So there's the objective element of the church that Christ does His work regardless of the virtue of the the person through whom he's doing the work so that you can know that what's being mediated to you is, is Christ himself regardless of the quality of the person who's doing it. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a, there is an interesting like Girardian take to that. I think that would be very fascinating to unpack. So you're like, I'm like, yeah, you're getting like, I'm like, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta be careful. I gotta be careful right now. But it's like, there's just, there's so much there that I think you're right. Cause I think fundamentally theologically, the, the question of mediation is just totally ignored in
1: theology. And I don't know how that's the case. And yeah, I think you're you making me think about the mediation of grace in the sacrament of confession. If there was a, a priest who was, for instance, in a, in a uh, state of mortal sin or something I mean, like that, right? Like the mediation of that grace happens. Exactly. Right. It, yep. and yeah. So exactly. Yeah, right. That, and so
0: that helps you with your discernment to say, I know God has worked. Um He's still meeting his, he's still, mediating himself to me and he's still and that desire is being mediated to me of what God wants which is himself um regardless of the of the medium Mm -hmm. um God is not overcome by the absolute we're not we're not um, we're not absolutely we're not totally depraved people we can't be right the the is of this because otherwise if if sin can overcome grace this way God's lost Right, God has lost. Um quickly then too. Like so, yeah. First folks, like I would encourage you if you can to go to that conference. Uh it looks like I'm hoping I'll, I'll be there myself. I, I really I'm looking forward to this. I think it's gonna be a great conference. Um, um, but the other thing I want just quickly then, because now it's like, you know, we gotta sell, we gotta move product uh too. <laughs> uh but just like just maybe briefly talk about your books, like it's it's uh it's um I think it's a really it's a really Cool book. It's, it's it's something that's needed. Just why why did you write this, and
1: what what is it that you're hoping to get across to people through this book? Wanting. So I wrote wanting because I was immersed in Gerard's work for about a decade, and I'd even went to a couple of the international conferences that happen every year um, about his work. So international scholars get together once a year, and I realized very quickly that there uh, his the core of his message wasn't being communicated to in a way that, um, the general public could easily grasp using lived experience from everyday life. So the subtitle of the book is the power of mimetic desire in everyday life. (laughs) So I'm using examples of relationship dynamics and high school and college and things that I hope most people can, can relate to, right. Mm -hmm. Things that we see in the news, the stock market and and Mm -hmm. how this works. So not a ton of theology in the book, Mm -hmm. but anybody who, um, at least knows who the author is and can read between the lines a little bit. Mm-hmm. Will see that it's actually full of of ideas that if you just take it to its logical conclusion, right? You'll, this, everything we're talking about on this podcast. So um, I, I, I wrote it to be an introduction. So cool. if you're if you're not somebody who studied philosophy or theology, I think the book. Um, you, I, I hope you find it engaging, at least, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and that's why I wrote it. Really, to I mean, I, I felt like I needed to. First of all, writing helps me think and work out um, ideas, mm-hmm. as, as you know, Father, having, in the middle of writing a, a thesis, mm-hmm. um, and it certainly did, um, and just trying to make this as relatable as I possibly could to lived experience on a daily basis, because that to me is the heart of the spiritual life, like just um, seeing that every everything that I do in the course of a day has you know, meaning and, and is an opportunity, right. For me to have an encounter. Mm -hmm. So I, that's, that's where I felt like mimetic desire could get a little too intellectualized and and Mm -hmm. lose that, that contact. And then lastly, I would say, um, if you apply and are able to make it to the conference, um, there's uh, through a generous benefactor, we, we have um, funds available for scholarships. Um, if you there's a 250 fee to attend, but we can give scholarships to to quite a few people, and even pay for travel uh, for some others if if that's needed. I mean, the, the goal here is really to get a diverse group of of people together that are mm-hmm. interested in, in these in these big ideas, mm-hmm. and see what happens.
0: Cool, awesome. Um, so then, where can people find you
1: online and stuff like that? Um, you can find me uh, on social media, Luke Burgess, uh, just my name. Cool. Um, and uh, you can learn more about the conference at novitateconference.org. dot um, And the book is is you can find pretty easily on Amazon or wherever you like to buy books, or your local bookstore would be. The, hopefully, they have it. would Be the best place. We're gonna to have to have some more conversations in the future about your art stuff, I think, because uh, yeah, you got my
0: brain. This is good. It's uh, well, it's 9:30 it's a.m., so I'm still in the process of waking up myself over here. But uh, uh, you've woken me up, which I appreciate. So um, thanks, Luke, for coming on. This has been very fast. I didn't actually expect it to go the way it went at the beginning, but I think it was good. I think it's uh, it's nice for people to hear how one's living their life in the world as a catholic but I think we need. To, to say because like, I always say that one of the secret weapons of the Vatican, Second Vatican Council is the universal call of holiness and how much that's still ignored and I think actually just by talking about this you were uh, in, in method doing what Gerard is saying to do which is mediating a desire which is holiness and that's what we all want and we all need to hear that and so i really appreciate you coming on sharing your story sharing about gerard sharing about the conference people please go check out the conference check out his book it's fantastic and uh we look forward to seeing you soon on our next episode of clerical speaking so god bless you all and we'll see you soon
1: thanks so much father thanks